Good morning and welcome to Legal Defense with Kirk O'Bear. I'm Kirk. Hope you're having a great weekend so far. So there is an issue that's brewing right now. You probably heard about it. And that has to do with a proposed constitutional amendment dealing with cash bail. I've talked about it a little bit on the show before, but this is becoming uh, quite controversial in the sense that we have uh, seen a trend throughout the nation, uh, and of course in Wisconsin as well, for what we call bail reform. And, you know, that same term gets used in two different ways. One is in the context of not having uh, the financial capabilities of a person determine their status, their custody status, when they are facing charges and not convicted. And that term is also used as a way to describe um, increasing the amount of financial burden that would be on somebody in that situation. So there can be a lot of confusion about what we're talking about when we use that term bail reform. I mean, obviously, both concepts have to do with bail and both have to do with changing it. But uh, there's been a lot of efforts over many years to try and reduce the number of people that are sitting in a pretrial confinement situation um, simply because they don't have the necessary funds to bond themselves out. And a very controversial uh, issue came up in recent elections, not just the last one, but uh, likely the one before as well in midterms and in the uh, four-year cycles that we see, where uh, there had been arguments that money should not be the issue at all, and that there is a suggestion that we could theoretically do away with uh, requiring somebody to post any cash because of all the other methods by which, through technology and monitoring and supervision and counseling and so forth, that we've invested a lot of money in um, to utilize those resources to ease the burden on the already overcrowded and overtaxed jail system. Um, then, of course, we saw the case of Darrell Brooks, who drove his car into the parade in Waukesha, and that was a um, talking point for changing things in the other direction. So that's kind of where we are right now, and just timing-wise, uh, in the upcoming April election, there will be a question on the ballot. And as I said, we've gone through this before, but just to revisit the issue, um, there's been a press release from the Wisconsin Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. Uh, I was the president of that organization in years past, and I remain involved um, as an emeritus uh member of the board of directors and as you can well imagine the purpose of that organization is to do our best to keep the system fair um, as an advocate for people that are uh, facing criminal charges and is kind of a, a method by which uh, we talk to legislators we talk to judges prosecutors and so forth to try and have policies in place that keep our constitutional rights strong, um, all of us, not just people facing criminal penalties, but um, 
I've known just in working on these issues over the years that there really can be a um, snowball effect. When you start whittling away at certain rights, it becomes easier to uh, not treat other constitutional rights that we have as importantly. Now, let me just read uh, this press release that came out from the Wisconsin Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers so that you get an idea as to what the problem is here. The legislature is asking the citizens of Wisconsin to vote blindly to amend the Constitution without an understanding of what would be included in that amendment. And by the way, that's true. You'll, you'll see a question on the ballot that will sound very uh, basic. It'll say something to the effect you support a constitutional amendment that would allow judges to have uh, consider more factors such as a person's uh, violent past uh, or if they're charged with something that is a violent crime in imposing a higher cash bail. Uh, this was um, legislation that was quickly pushed through to get the proposed constitutional amendment to voters by the April 2023 election. One of the problems with this quick push is that the legislature has not legally defined the terms serious injury or violent crime, and those two terms are central to the proposed amendment. The amendment would allow courts to consider additional factors which they are not currently allowed to consider when setting cash bail and imposing conditions of bond. First major change is changing the Constitution to allow considering for serious injury instead of serious bodily injury. But the legislature says the legal definition of serious injury will be determined by them, and they have not provided that definition yet. The same is true of allowing the court's additional leeway to impose cash bail when a person is accused of a, quote, violent crime. But again, no definition of violent crime has been provided by the legislature and can include anything down to certain types of disorderly conduct, depending on what definition the legislature uses. <clears throat> the Wisconsin legislature is more concerned with capitalizing on the shock and horror of the tragedy of the Waukesha Parade tragedy than in making laws to help and protect the citizens of Wisconsin equally. Good bail decisions rely on evidence and information. Courts are already allowed to consider any prior missed court appearances in setting cash bail, and there is a list of factors already set by law which are to be considered in setting conditions of release. That list, again, already law in Wisconsin, allows consideration of the seriousness of the offense and the need to protect the public. Focusing on cash bail does not add any new protections for Wisconsinites, but it will increase the likelihood that lower- and middle-income people accused of crime will remain in custody while their case is pending, and that wealthier people will be able to pay to get out of jail. It will increase the likelihood that jails will be holding those accused but not convicted of crimes who are supposed to be innocent until proven guilty, even for lower-level offenses. There is good evidence that the longer a low- or moderate-risk person is held in custody without a conviction, the more likely they are to be arrested again in the future. That does not make our society safer but actually the opposite. The longer the time of pretrial detention, the greater likelihood a person will plead out whether they are guilty of the offense or not, simply to end their incarceration. That does not increase fairness or justice, but again, the opposite. Cash bail increases the number of people waiting for court and trial, straining our already overcrowded jails 
It puts pressure on the system to move faster, and our system is already failing to keep up with current cases, let alone recover from the delays caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. Most importantly, we now have good evidence of what occurs when a city, a county, or a state moves away from using cash bail in determining who is released and under what conditions. Because of bail reform in some states and responses to the COVID-19 pandemic, statistical information is available that indicates there is an increase in public safety instead of a decrease when cash bail as a mechanism for release is limited or entirely removed. For these reasons, Wisconsin Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers opposes the proposed constitutional amendment on cash bail. So, uh, very interesting that this organization chimes in and uh, in an effort to really educate the public on what's really going on here. In an ideal world, in our democracy, uh, we do favor uh, letting the voters have their say on these types of issues. The problem is that if we're not careful enough to know exactly what it is that we're voting for, and if it's uh, worded in such a way that it has a natural appeal, it can really be disguising a, a bigger agenda. And I think that's part of what's going on here, because it, I think your average citizen, who we all have a, um, a fear of violent crime, we uh, see it in the news all the time, we would much prefer to feel safe in our homes and do anything we can to achieve that psychologically. But there's a temptation to to find, I'm not going to say creative, but really philosophical ways to try and allay those fears by tinkering with the system. And when we start messing around with our presumption of innocence and exacerbate the flaws that are already there that prevent people from getting uh, fair treatment in court, then it really has a great risk of reducing the overall effectiveness of the system and people will start to um, not trust it, not have faith in it. And that's a big problem that, that could set us back decades in our uh, efforts to maintain fairness in our system so we have to take a break we'll be right back all right a little more discussion about this um constitutional amendment uh referendum so to speak when we uh see it on the ballot coming up in april and as i was saying before the break um voting is a very important privilege that we have in our society and it works best when voters are informed and we have the opportunity to do research and figure out exactly what it is that we're voting for or who we're voting for or what issues that we're really talking about. And um, occasionally we see something that comes in on this level. And really, when we're talking about a constitutional amendment, we saw this happen with uh, Marcy's Law being adopted as a constitutional amendment in our state some years ago where, again, that was something that was not very well explained. A lot of people didn't realize what exactly they were voting for or didn't have the um, opportunity to really fully understand what it is that's being proposed. Um, and in many ways, this is actually worse than that was in the sense that 
this is something that has the the potential to tremendously impact uh, how we treat people that are presumed innocent. And it's always been a problem in our system when somebody is facing a charge that they may very well be completely innocent of, and there is an effort to impose cash uh, in, in a process that ends up taking literally a few minutes where everything about that person's life, whether they have a criminal past or not, whether the allegation, which is a mere allegation, is serious enough to imagine that somebody in that situation would want to flee, give up their life, everything they've done, everything they've worked for, leave their family, their home, their belongings, and uh, get out of the country, which happens extremely rarely. It does happen. Um but it's very, very rare. And statistically, <clears throat> it's it's definitely been shown that having a cash bond in pl- place, even a high cash bond in place, does not have any statistical correlation in keeping somebody from fleeing or, for that matter, showing up to court when they're supposed to. And the big disparity here, as pointed out by the Uh, statement I read in the first segment here is that somebody could have a lot of means to be able to post any amount of cash because they're a wealthy person. And somebody else who's living paycheck to paycheck or less than that, which is a lot of people in our country, would not have those means. So there's a financial aspect here, and it comes down to a, a class difference when you really think about it. And those are determinations that cannot be accurately made in the span of a few minutes in front of a court commissioner or a judge. And what we're proposing here is adding a lot of vague and um, really imprecise uh, notions to this process that will result in more cash uh, being required, more people incarcerated. And uh, it's all going to be based on fear of the unknown, prospective chances, things that might happen. Now, when we look at a case like the Brooks case, it's very easy to say, hey, if that dude hadn't been given the opportunity to post a very low cash bond, then the tragedy may not have happened. And, And we don't know that that's true. What we do know is that this was somebody who uh, apparently was having a lot of issues, problems that were unmet, unaddressed. And if he was going to be a danger to society, it's hard to say whether uh, keeping him in custody on a different charge for whatever period of time would have prevented these problems that this person had from (coughs) erupting in the way that they did. I mean, it's theoretically possible or even likely that Had there been a higher cash bond, he still would have had the ability to post it and still would have done the same thing. Or if that had been a delayed process, the charge he was facing at the time was um, of concern, but not the kind of thing that puts somebody in prison for the rest of their life. Lives. Life? For the rest of his life. Um, But of course, you know, we can't say in retrospect that this is somebody that should never have been released under any circumstances because eventually he would have 
even if he had to serve some kind of prison sentence, he would have been ultimately eventually released. And if the unmet issues going on with this person, whether they're mental health or whether he truly is a violent, bad danger to society, those things don't get addressed by keeping somebody incarcerated on a different charge because of the possibility that he could do something very bad. So when somebody engages in this analysis, like cause and effect, like, see, people are dead now because of low bond. And, and that's just far too simplistic and far too naive for us to think that it's that simple because there are many, many issues and many, many problems in our society and bad things will happen no matter what we do. And I'd point this out as well. Just because somebody has a lot of money doesn't make them safer um, and vice versa. If somebody doesn't have a great deal of financial um, backing for whatever reason, that doesn't make them uh, more dangerous, you see. So it happens a lot where there is a high cash bond and that person posts it and they go out and they commit some of the crime. Just like it happens a lot where there's a, a low cash bail that's imposed and the person doesn't commit any crime. I mean, one thing we do know is that a lot of crimes that occur, a lot of them, and I mean things that are domestic abuse, violent crime, uh, homicides, sexual assaults, all kinds of things, um, occur and people are accused of these things when they have no criminal record at all. And there would have been nothing, uh, you know, in the process to say this person is at risk of doing this very bad thing. In fact, I've had many, many clients that lived the vast majority of their lives to the age of 40, 50, 60 or higher, never even had a speeding ticket, but all of a sudden they're facing, you know, a homicide allegation or something. And that happens a lot where there's been no, no indication of any kind of criminal behavior or criminal uh, penchant for anything. And, you know, if we're looking at this as a predictor of whether somebody's going to be capable or having the opportunity to do something bad, it's, it's not a good predictor um, whether someone has a, a criminal record or not or whether they've got money or not. That simply isn't a very good predictor. Um, so we're we're really putting a lot more arbitrariness into this process, and it absolutely will result in prosecutors having the ability to make arguments based on the vagueness uh, and the fear that any given person could do something bad because they're accused of something bad. Like, you know, what's basically an effort to divide our society into two different parts, bad people and good people. All right. There's always been that, that tension. There's always been that problem. And once somebody's in the system, even just accused of something again, that they may not have even done, um, all of a sudden that what was a good person yesterday is now labeled a bad person and treated that way. Uh, at every step of the way. We say people are innocent until proven guilty, but if you could be in court when these decisions are made, it sure doesn't feel like that. And nobody walks away from the process feeling like uh, our rights are being protected 
in those situations. It seems like there are a lot of decisions that have already been made by prosecutors and judges that go along with what the prosecutors say. Now, we do have protections in place. Judges are, by law, independent from that process. But what we're doing is every time we inject more and more of these vague, undefined terms and, and promote, basically, that's what this is, a promotion of uh, increasing the unconvicted jail population to have more people housed and fewer people able to go about their lives while they're facing a criminal allegation. The pro problem is, if you go back to what, one of the fundamentals in our Wisconsin Constitution, and, and many state constitutions, but ours is particularly um, strong in the sense that it specifically states that cash is not to be used as a means to protect the public. It says that. It says that cash is to be used only bail, you know, cash bail is only to be used as a means to ensure the defendant's future appearance. Now, there have been modifications to the law, not the Constitution itself, but the statutes that have put additional factors into play. And that's probably appropriate, but that's probably where it should end as well, is with the, the law being part of the statutes and not the Constitution. Anyway, we have to take a break. We'll be right back. So one would hope as an advanced society that we could be smart about things and not ignorant um, in making decisions that can have a huge impact on the way our system works. And this constitutional amendment is basically uh, an example of stepping away from being smart about things and being reactionary. Um, so you can probably tell that that I'm personally opposed to this amendment because, first of all, uh, most people don't even realize that there are already um, a lot of protections in effect that utilize and place an emphasis on those resources that we have in our communities that we pay a lot of money for, tax dollars, for alternatives to incarceration, for electronic monitoring devices, for... Um, day reporting for counseling. And, you know, one thing that we can say, if we're going to be smart about this, is if somebody finds themselves in a situation where they're accused of doing something very bad, and if it's something that we don't foresee that this person may be incarcerated for the rest of their life, and we know that there's going to have to be some kind of reintroduction into society, is it better to have somebody just sitting uh, in jail waiting for this process to work itself out with very limited funding, uh, very limited staffing. Um, there is a huge shortage of both prosecutors and defense lawyers. Uh, and it's a trend that's been going on nationwide. And for some reason, people are becoming more and more unwilling <laughs> to engage in that type of profession for whatever reason. Um, I can't really explain it, but it's been a trend that's been kind of building over the past 10 years, for sure, but more intensely over the past five years. And uh, I know we've talked about it on the show before, but the Public Defender's Office has had tremendous difficulty finding anybody in the private bar that's willing to take appointments to help with their workload. 
partly because of funding issues and partly because of um, it's a very difficult job that does not pay very well at all. I mean, theoretically, when one does that, they are agreeing to, you know, take a loss. Um, they're agreeing to lose money. It's worse than volunteering for something because they basically, uh, if one tries to live on that type of income, it's frankly impossible to do a good job. So that's part of the process that's, that's broken that needs to be fixed. But again, if we can be smart about this and look at the fact that we have resources in the community that are available, that we have faith in. Uh, when Have you ever heard a, a judge or a prosecutor say, counseling is, is dumb, it doesn't work, people don't need counseling, forget about it? No. But we all know that when people have needs, even if they're accused of something, overall people are going to fare better if they can get the help they need. Substance abuse, mental health, counseling, uh, supervision with some rules. I mean, sometimes somebody needs structure and, you know, help, help with their life. And those are things that we can give somebody that we can't give them if they're just sitting in a jail cell, waiting for their case to be resolved. And another very good point from this press release is that we've already been seeing uh, the impact of uh, the court system basically shutting down, more or less. Uh, not completely, but let's just say severely limited in what it can do during the pandemic. And we're kind of still digging out of that hole. And there are people who have been incarcerated for an extremely long period of time waiting for the process to work itself out. Uh, today, as we sit here today, there are people that still have not had their case resolved because the system is so jam-packed, backlogged, and the, the inefficiencies that are nobody's fault, but just present themselves because of how we have these rights, you see. We have, we have a, anybody accused of a crime has a right to a jury trial. That is in the Constitution, or the United States Constitution. And when we do things that make it so that is less of a viable option, or if it at times, you know, can become almost impossible to achieve because of these backlogs and because of the congestion in the system and because of a number of other factors which are very complex. We could spend many, many hours talking about all the reasons why that is the case. But when we are making it so that when it is very, very difficult for somebody to exercise that right, it affects everything else. And as this press release pointed out, it's going to increase the likelihood that people will end up taking plea deals or pleading guilty to something that they didn't do simply because they want to get out of the jail. And this is another very dangerous aspect of this, and it's built into our constitutional principles. Remember, what's, what's one of the main overarching themes that we see throughout the Bill of Rights and throughout our, our constitutionally mandated 
protected rights. The main theme, if you had to say what's the one thing that's in common with all that, is to not give the government too much power over citizens and their ability to exercise their freedoms. And we specify certain of those freedoms, freedoms of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of religion, and other freedoms. And you add them all up, and it's to not be interfered with by the government in an arbitrary sense. And what this amendment would do is tip that balance of power heavily in favor of the government to incarcerate people, keep keep people in custody before they've been um, or if, you know, they might not ever get convicted of a crime. And that's, that is a tragedy and a failing of our system. When we have somebody who sits in custody, and trust me, I've had many, many clients in this situation. The district attorney's office comes in and recommends an outrageously high bond that nobody can post. And the person sits there for however long. Now, little footnote here, and many people will point this out. There are opportunities to reduce bond, to reduce cash. One of those mechanisms is to demand a speedy trial. And it's linked to the fact that if somebody does not have the means to post bond, there are provisions both by law and in the constitutional sense that one can get a speedy trial. Well, that original concept was such that it envisioned that someone could be facing the disruption of their life in many different ways, not necessarily being incarcerated. It could include that, but it could also include the fact that just the allegation of something very serious can uh, have a negative impact on one's ability to exercise their freedoms, right? So the idea of a prompt disposition where a jury trial would occur within a certain period of time, let's say 90 days, which is the common term that we throw around, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> that it minimizes the disruption of the accused person's life and also minimizes the disruption on witnesses who may be called in to testify and victims of a crime that may be required to participate in the process so that we're not in this situation where we're waiting around for a long time. Problem is, that's the rule, but the exceptions to the rule are many and often overshadow the general rule. So let's say somebody demands a speedy trial, and that happens by saying, I want a speedy trial. And then the speedy trial clock, so to speak, starts running. If the prosecution can't bring the case to trial, and if the court can't schedule a trial within that time period, then the issue of one's custody status needs to be addressed. And there are two options. One is that the court can order that someone be released from bond, or they can uh, permit the district attorney's office to dismiss the case and then refile it. So that's kind of the ironic thing is that, yes, you have a right to a speedy trial, but you don't have a right to necessarily enforce it because of the factors that are involved, which make it so in a lot of circumstances, you just get bypassed. So a lot of people don't know this, but if someone's running up against a speedy trial determination and the DA's office says, we simply can't try this case within that time frame, they're allowed to dismiss it and then start over and refile it. So someone could be released from custody and then immediately brought back into custody. But there's another statutory provision that allows for 
the state to request that somebody remain in custody while they have time to refile charges. So nine times out of 10, it doesn't result in somebody uh, being released from custody in those situations. Time for another break. We'll be right back. So again, because I, you know, I do uh, like to talk about both sides of an issue, and we've been talking about this proposed constitutional amendment to um, incorporate a number of different factors that would have the effect of increasing um, cash bail in case certain cases. Um, but what one thing that is pointed out by people who support this process is that it is part of our system that the issue can be revisited any number of times. What I mean by that is let's look at a situation where a court commissioner will set bond at a certain amount. And that's, as I was describing before, this process that happens within the span of really a few minutes um, after a criminal complaint is drafted, the court commissioner has the unenviable task of trying to figure out what this case is all about based on the words that the prosecutor chooses to use in this criminal complaint and a very brief uh, overview of what the prosecutor thinks should be an appropriate amount of cash to keep the person's uh, appearance in court assured, um, to address any real or imagined flight risk, etc. And then a very brief statement from the defendant, or if that person's lucky enough at this early stage in the process to have representation, or somebody from the public defender's office who is temporarily representing that person, um, because there have to be determinations of indigency and all these other things that happen before that's all lined up. So that determination can be made, and it is true that that issue can be revisited with a circuit court judge with a request to reduce that cash, and that happens, and uh, judges do have that authority, and they do exercise it. We do see cases where it is reduced. But um, we also see cases where it, it doesn't change, and it goes, no matter how many times you ask, it stays right where it is. Others will, will point out that after a certain period of time, it and it becomes... Uh, the amount of time that a person spent in custody really outweighs the state's interest in keeping that person incarcerated, then it, it can change as well. And it's also true that when there is a resolution of a case, especially if it involves putting somebody on probation and having uh, access to the post-conviction resources that we provide people, either when they're incarcerated or not, if they're still in the community, that that's something that can happen much quicker than a trial. But the problem still comes down to the fact that this has the capacity, the strong likelihood to impact how all of our rights are exercised. You know, it's hard to think about all of the ramifications and all the different, you know, spider web effects of something. But let me just paint a picture here for you. And let's say that People know that this is a trend that is going to increase, and we have to always contemplate what what does the public think about stuff like this. And it, on the on the ballot, the public's likely going to think, "Hey, this is a good thing. It'll make us all. It'll make our communities safer in some abstract way." 
And, you know, to vote no on this amendment, you'd have to know the reasons why. There are very good reasons why, but they're not going to tell you those reasons why. You have to do that research on your own. And that's what I'm basically trying to help you do here. But in an overall sense, when the public starts understanding that once you're accused of something, you don't have much of a chance. You don't have a fighting chance of defending yourself anymore. And the system consists of people in the government having too much power. And what happens is we all become then subjugated to that exercise of power. And if it feels arbitrary, if it feels unfair, it has that, again, the spider web effect of people not having faith in any of their rights being protected. So you, that could result in people having a lack of faith in uh, standing up for themselves, standing up for their own innocence, uh, trusting that the system will exonerate them, and feeling that this is something that has happened. Uh, through bad luck or whatever. I mean, that you can see how this would impact someone's overall view of society. And, and again, I've met many, many people in my life that have considered themselves to be good law-abiding citizens, and then one day, for whatever reason, they find themselves accused of something very serious, and it changes everything, really, forever. And then I know many of these people that then there's a split in how they go about leading their lives afterwards, and they simply don't trust the government anymore. <laughs> and that's not a good thing. I mean, you know, the, I think our constitutional rights are there to keep the government in control, but also so that the government can do what it's supposed to do and do it well and do it effectively so that citizens cooperate with the government as long as the government is limited in the amount of arbitrary power that it can, it can entail. And remember, the history behind all this is such that when you give governmental authorities too much power or the opportunity to exercise too much power, recognizing that government in and of itself is necessarily a political endeavor, that people are fighting for public approval on all levels. Uh, our rights, the protection of our rights, recognizes that that is where, if you plant the seed for the opportunity for people to abuse that power, it likely will happen, just in a general, natural sense. So, more and more, uh, we've seen a trend where we're relying upon the good faith of people in government to do their jobs properly. And this is another example where we would just say, well, the, the, the thing that protects us from arbitrariness is that we have good, ethical, quality, fair prosecutors in our system. Which, by the way, there's no way of ensuring that other than the fact that they are elected. And if the, theoretically, if the voting public believes those things not to be true, then they can vote that person out of office. But as we've seen, more often than not, it has to do with who's tougher on crime. And that tends to be it right there. So uh, I want 
if you can, be a responsible voter. I'm not telling you how to vote on this. I'm telling you to do some research and, you know, think for yourself what this would mean rather than just showing up on election day and and deciding there on the spot because this is a very complicated issue that's been whittled down to and portrayed as um, a very simple issue and it is not um, the more times that we allow these types of things to happen the easier it is for things in the future that would have a similar negative impact on our freedoms to occur and the more effort that people engage in to try and simplify complex issues the more we're at risk of creating problems um, that will be almost impossible to undo in the future and that that's think about it that's another reason why we're talking about a constitutional amendment here rather than just a statutory provision because statutes that are created by the legislature can be changed by future legislation. Not easily, but much easier than a constitutional amendment. A constitutional amendment becomes something that is cemented into, you know, uh, that that constitutional provision. That's the difference, is that yes, it's law, but it has the even greater impact by being constitutional rather than simply um, legislative. So, uh, do your homework. It's very important that you do that. And um, if we can come to a logical uh, determination on this, I think everybody's better off. And again, if we're worried about what somebody prospectively might do, if they're released from custody, just remember that we have a great deal of resources already devoted to preventing that. And any legislation that purports to be able to read the future like in a uh, looking glass or crystal ball is simply bad legislation so or a bad amendment anyway that's all the time we have for this week hope you can tune in next week as you can every single week right here on 1330 and 101.5 whbl this has been legal defense have a great weekend